The U.S. Open begins in seven days at the National Tennis Center, flipping the switch on what will be a dizzying few weeks of sports. As the NFL opens its regular season, MLB and MLS continue theirs, the NBA and NHL roll through their playoffs, and NASCAR starts its playoffs. We'll also have the Preakness, the U.S. Open of Golf, and maybe some college football. Our tennis writer Brett McCormick is in to catch us up on what to expect from a spectatorless U.S. Open. Then, Brett and I will bring in NFL writer Ben Fisher for a discussion of how this crowded sports schedule might play out. And we'll close with executive editor and publisher Abe Madcor. All that and whatever else comes up once we get talking here in the work-from-home newsroom of Sports Business Journal. I'm Bill King, and this is First Look. So I was just making some notes about what's coming up in this next month, thinking about the wall-to-wall sports schedule that awaits a nation that remains largely at home, and well, my hand is cramping and my head hurts. We're going to get into all of that, but we'll start by bringing in our tennis writer, Brett McCormick. Brett, seven days to the start of what will be a very different U.S. Open, what are the anticipated differences that are catching your eye? Yeah, this will be the weirdest U.S. Open ever, for sure, uh, was was very complicated and difficult to put together. Um, and I think the probably one of the main things that I'm looking for is to see how their uh, bubble is maintained, you know, because tennis is a sport full of individual contractors. Uh, they kind of have very differing life experiences uh, on the professional tennis tours. You know, some are the jet set crowd and then some are really like scratching to get by and it's that first group that i'm kind of uh curious about see if they can keep it together and and behave for a couple weeks uh the usta is um looks like has put a lot of money and a lot of effort and energy and planning into creating what looks like a bubble that should really work uh and they've got two tournaments back to back they moved the cincinnati tournament uh, which is part owned by the usta they move that to New York, so they're going to play that starting the 20th, and then they go right into the U.S. Open. And so it's a, I think it's a, a good idea. It's a good way to do it. You know, obviously the biggest challenge for tennis was uh, it's globalism. You know, so you've got travel restrictions have been a real big issue for uh, the tours. You know, the City Open was canceled, and they, they cited travel restrictions as one of the biggest problems that they couldn't get over. You know, tennis had a pretty good uh, suspension period. You know, there were a bunch of exhibitions and most of them went, you know, went fine. Um, But, you know, you go back to um, Serbia and Croatia and Novak Djokovic's uh, Adria tour, which was pretty much a disaster, led to a a bit of an outbreak among some of the sports best players. You know, there was videos of them in nightclubs dancing and they had full stadiums and little kids hugging the players. It looked like something from 2019 and not 2020. So. As long as, you know, everybody behaves, um, I think this U.S. Open is, is going to go really well inside the bubble. You know, there's going to be some some interesting um, technological innovations and crowd stuff that they're going to be doing. I mean, this is a, an event that has, you know, around normally around like 800,000 people in attendance. So it's uh, one of the it's the, the most attended um, uh, tennis tournament. And so. You know, it will be really interesting to see how they approach that. You know, that's something I think we've all watched every sport this uh, as they return this year, you know, to kind of see how they handle crowd noise and things like that, ambiance, environment. I'm especially interested to see how they do that uh, with the U.S. Open. 
Yeah. Have you, uh, have, have there been discussions about that? What's, I mean, can we expect to see the sort of the video boards and, and, and watch from home sort of thing? Is that, is that on the, on the docket? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I asked, uh, I talked to Lou share the chief revenue officer last, uh, last week. And, uh, you know, one of the questions I asked him was like, what's it going to look like on TV? Uh, they're going to have, um, lower, lower bowl. It's going to be covered, you know, with seat covers that are going to have sponsors names on them. Shots are going to be tight. Uh, they got more cameras, uh, a lot more cameras um, that they're going to be using. You know, I think there'll be some different angles that you're going to get, you know, without fans that you wouldn't normally have. They're going to have the boards like you've seen with the NBA and pretty much almost every other league. Uh, the difference for them, uh, it'll be slightly different. Uh, I'm not sure what other leagues have done this, but, you know, most of those you, you, you've not been able to hear anybody. Um, and so for this one, what they're doing, they're using this app called or it's part of their app called FanCam. Uh, it was developed by CrowdAmp, which is a Wasserman company. And you can record, as a fan, you can, um, as long as you go through the US Open app, you can record cheers and like, I guess, comments and, and, and just shout into your phone and record it. And then it goes into a library that they can choose from and play um, at certain points throughout the match. You know, not while the points are going on, but um, in between points. Uh, and that that is also going to be available to broadcasters um, that they'll be able to use. So. And then IBM has done some stuff too, but um, you know I, I I can't talk about it yet because they they got me on a uh, embargo. It, it comes out next week, but they're doing some cool stuff too that's going to involve crowd noise and things like that that will also be available to broadcasters and could um, you know that that's going to depend on what ESPN wants to do uh, with the broadcast, um, you know whether they use those things or not. But they will have some cool tools at their disposal. And then the thing that I'm like. Uh, most intrigued by this. This is one of my favorite innovations that I've heard of this summer. Tennis has kind of all these little quirks about it. You know, it's sort of an old school sport. And one of them is the um, player's box. You know, the player gets to invite uh, whoever um, to sit in this box. Uh, you know, it's usually kind of back uh, towards the back of the court. And they usually have like a good sight line to it, you know, from where they're serving. And, you know, it's generally, uh, say, like a player double faults, they're generally going to look to the player's box and, you know, motion or make some face or curse or, you know, look for some inspiration or something. There's, you know, if you're Serena Williams, it's you're going to have like a cool celebrity or two in there. And the player's boxers are, are something that are kind of always watched. And so they're, they're not going to be able to do that this year because there's going to be no fans in attendance. Uh, uh, so... What they're doing is a virtual players box. This is going to be produced by the famous, with the help of the famous group, uh, which I think was involved in the NFL draft. And so basically the the player will get a link. They send it to their uh, friends and family and whoever else, supporters, uh, celebrities. And they're going to be shown on a screen, an interactive screen, uh, you know, where the fans will, the, the people in the players box will see the player and vice versa. And they'll be able to communicate and that, that'll be, um, available like during changeovers and you know uh, things like that so um also will be available to uh the broadcasters so that'll be kind of interesting to see you know like somebody uh smash your forehand into the net and just look over to this screen and start pissing and moaning you know it'll be kind of funny to to see that uh that virtual interaction so um that's you know one of the efforts that they're making to try to make this i guess as normal as you can make it in a year that is highly abnormal yeah, it is interesting that, you know, it, 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 um, the fact that they've sort of taken those, you know, those individual coaches sort of out of the equation, um, as opposed to letting, to letting 
you know, saying, okay, each player can have one uh, and they're going to be in this location. They decided to go entirely remotely. That's, that's, that's different from what anybody else has done. Um, and I, I agree with you. I think it could be some pretty interesting television. Um, and you had that story this week. The other one that you had looked at the sort of, you think about the, the U.S. Open, you know, playing out over such a, you know, such a long span of time uh, in New York has always been very much about hospitality and entertainment. And it's it's sort of a platinum plated sponsor event in many ways, right? It's it it's it's the it becomes the thing uh for that span in New York. Um how is that translating and how has how has the event managed through that with its sponsors over these last, you know, what's it been now? Five months? six months probably that they've been talking to them about first about whether there would even be an event and then about what that would mean to them. Yeah. That's been tough for tennis. Kind of like golf. It's really heavily uh, skewed. It's sponsorship is really heavily skewed to hospitality. Uh, For example, JP Morgan chase hosts uh, over 6,500 clients during the U S open, which is, um, you know, a lot of whining and dining. So that's been tough for the for the sport for the whole year. So they've had to really reimagine a lot of these sponsorships. Um, that'll be something that's pretty interesting to see how they rework that as well. I know um, J.P. Morgan Chase had uh, you know hosted big concerts last year uh, that you know Serena Williams was the host of it, and uh, you know um, bank customers were allowed to go to these concerts. They're going to do those virtually this year. Um, so that that you know we'll, we'll see how that goes, but. It was uh, very challenging. It's been challenging for any sports property this year to deal with sponsors. It's been very challenging for sponsors to, to get answers from sports properties, you know, especially when there's so much uh, influx. And so what the U.S. Open and USDA did really quickly was establish what they called Ask, Ask Us Anything calls. And they started these in late April. They've had 11 or 12 of them. Uh, and... It's basically a weekly call, hour long or so, and they have about 80 people on it, uh, you know, from their broadcasters, sponsors, um, you know, other other people that need to know. And basically just like had an open forum, more or less, uh, to, to talk about, you know, what was going on with the tournament, how things are going to be different, where they stood. And, you know, really one of the biggest uh, benefits of this was transparency. I mean, because... There was so much reporting around the U.S. Open throughout the summer. Uh, you know, people said it was going to be in Indian Wells. Some said it was going to be in uh, at the National Tennis Center in Orlando, uh, which all of that, you know, never was even going to be the case, uh, according to Lou Cher. So a lot of what they were doing was kind of just telling sponsors like, no, we're going to be in New York. We're going to be in New York um, and really trying to combat some of the uh, misinformation that was out there. So uh, it was universally um, appreciated by the sponsors, by the broadcasters uh, for the, the transparency. And, and some of the ones I talked to, you know, Amazon Prime and JP Morgan Chase, you know, de- deal with a lot of other sports properties and said that, you know, these meetings the USCA had and, and the transparency they showed was, you know, best in class for what they dealt with over the summer. Uh, so I thought that was something that was really important for USCA to do because, you know, as Lou pointed out, I mean, they've got uh, nine sponsors that have been partners for 20 years or more, and they've got six that have been uh, for, let's see, six for 25 or more. So 
um, I mean, this, this is a, a entity that's, you know, really um, specializes in long-term relationships. And so they, you know, you kind of see they gave the treatment that is worthy of the, the length of those relationships um, to these sponsors and broadcasters. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the, when you, when you think about it, many of those companies, some at least are dealing with probably all are dealing with their own financial pressures. And so I know across sports, that's been a real issue. When you think of, when you talk to teams, when you talk to leagues, um, those conversations that they've had to have, because while they're saying, Hey, we still want you, we want to keep your money. Um, maybe we want to roll some of it over. We certainly don't want to give it back. So let's figure out what we can do here. Well, on the other side of the table, it's like, well, you know, we're, we're under pressures too. And those can be difficult conversations. So I suspect that having that open line of communication, and I thought it was interesting that that whole idea of ask us anything, they really meant that. And I suppose they got it. Yeah. And he said, Lou said, this was kind of funny to me as a reporter, but he said he was thrilled that there were never any leaks from the meetings, <laughs> which, uh, you know, um, maybe is a ding at me somehow, but um, a, a backhanded compliment or something. But, you know, they, they entrusted the partners and sponsors with a lot of you know, kind of sensitive information that was not out there. And, you know, they, uh, the, the, the people on the receiving end, I think respected that. And, and so they were able to really, there was a free flow of information, you know, and some, so they had, um, they would have like special guests each week, you know, who would talk about some specific aspect of the tournament. And then, you know, one, sometimes, uh, like ESPN would talk about what they were doing, which was, you know, pretty crucial for everybody because this is now a TV event essentially. Um, and so they had, you know, everybody kind of got a turn to talk. Um, most, qu- most questions were submitted, uh, in advance, but you know, you were able to, they were able to, um, talk to each other during it as well. So, I mean, it, I just think it was, um, the reporter in me does appreciate very much that they, uh, opted to go for more information instead of less. And, and I think, you know, that's, that's kind of that elite level of, uh, customer service in a way, you know, to, to deal with these people and just make this, um, easier on them in a situation where it was just not easy, uh, you know, cause it, there was just so much in flux. I mean, they really thought, you know, at the, at the spring that had the pandemic been handled in a good way by the United States that they thought they would be fine by September. Well, <laughs> it turned out not to be the case. So, um, I think these meetings got more and more important as, as the summer went on and, and the situation did not necessarily get better. Well, we are a week away. Uh, Brett McCormick, thanks for setting us up and stay with us here now uh, because we're going to roll over. We're going to bring in um, Ben Fisher, uh, our NFL writer. We've got a, a large package this week that uh, that looks really across the sporting landscape, which is about to get really, really busy. I mean, if you think these last few weeks with MLB and the NBA and the NHL, both in their playoffs now, all going on at once, um, wait till this next two months roll out because we'll see what happens with college football. I suppose some might even say we'll see what happens with the NFL, but there certainly are a lot of events on the calendar. Uh, the NFL is certainly not used to be used to it being this crowded, um, but everyone is going to have to sort of so, sort of deal with that, right? I mean, how how do you? I wonder in these next few months, something's got to fall off the table, right, Ben? Well, I guess as the NFL reporter, I, I've i got the luxury of covering an entity that is highly confident that uh, they're just going to play and people are going to watch them, and that's everyone else's problem. Uh, so, yeah, something's got to give, but uh, that's not uh, 
I don't think that's the NFL's. Ah, yes, the the arrogance of the NFL rises again. We've we've seen it again and again and again over the years, and here it comes. Well, I don't know. Those other leagues will be in their playoffs. Um, the, the the NFL is used to is also a bit spoiled. Um, all it really has to worry about is the World Series. This may be a little different, and um, an NFL regular season game. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be quite the same thing um, in this crowded landscape. I'm I'm sure that they think so, um, but uh, but when you get outside of their markets, I, I I wonder what Brett. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a extremely crowded TV situation. I kind of like one thing I was thinking about the other day. I kind of wonder if any of the I mean, many, many sports properties that are about to fall into this uh, chunk of time in the fall would kind of look at what, maybe not MLS because their ratings weren't that great, but uh, like the NBA and NHL with these kind of all day, you know, playing earlier in the day uh, kind of TV schedules. I wonder if anybody will will try to do an end around with the, with the crowd um, and, and I guess to use it like a horse racing term to kind of go around the outside. Um, you know, cause I know baseball was talking about, especially if they did a bubble for the playoffs, which sound, you know, sounds like it's becoming more realistic, more and, and more, more likely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, their, their experience has not been very good. And they also, uh, as Eric Brisbell wrote, have kind of baked, baked that possibility into their, uh, contentious CBA. Uh, but it sounds like they could play games at one and then later at night at the same park, you know, and, and have time to do the um, cleaning in between. I'm like, I'm intrigued to see if anybody else goes for these odd windows though, because I don't think it's clear that a lot of people are going to be back at work yet. I think it's unlikely that a lot of people are going to be back at work. Right. Exactly. I don't think anything has changed that greatly. So I got to say like, personally, as a fan, one of the kind of fun things has been to turn on the TV at like 9am and have background sports, which background sports is like the best thing when you're a sports writer. It's like baseball or something that you're barely paying attention to, but that's on when like the volume goes up or something, you know, when somebody yells about something. And I'm intrigued to see if like anybody goes for an end around or tries to tries to pull that off, because that that has been something that's been kind of interesting to me to see. There has been some success with that. I know hockey, like hockey fans were really loving that. Um, I love that every four years with the World Cup, you know, especially when it's like five or six hours ahead of us, you know, where you can wake up at nine and watch a game and then there's one at 11, one at one and one at three. I mean, that that's kind of fun. So I don't, I don't know if, uh, I know NFL is probably not going to be the one to make that move, but I wonder if any other sports properties are going to try to do that. Um, and, and one other area where you might see that is if um, some of these other leagues try to get, get in on the fall, you know, that don't have like a league or don't have a second part of their season necessarily set up, uh, you know, like NWSL or WNBA or, uh, I even talked to Major League Lacrosse the other day about something else, and they were mentioning that if college football really drops out, that there's some TV windows there they could try to pursue, and they might try to do another one or two week event. So, speaking of of the NFL, are there discussions about how, how flexible? You know, the NFL already has its flex schedule for later in the season. Are they flexible enough that they could move into Saturday? There, that's that's certainly there could certainly be some opportunities there if college football doesn't come off right. What's what are the conversations there, Ben? Well, I think it's obviously very appealing to the NFL to spread out to have more national windows. Um, they've got some some legal issues though about playing on Saturday under the Sports Broadcasting Act of 1961. 
And, um, you know, I'm not, I, I didn't do my reading. I, I'm not prepared to speak in, in great detail on that, but they can't simply move to Saturday of their own volition. No, it was, that was meant to be guarded, you know, and, and, and protected for the colleges. I, I, if I recall, right, it goes back quite a ways. I, I can't recall actually as, as crusty and old as I may be, I, I was not around for, for, for that one. Um, but, but it, but I'll tell you what. There was for years sort of a standing understanding that there would be no um, there would be no high school football on television because that was meant for Friday nights were meant for and that colleges would stay off of Friday nights because that was supposed to be for the high schools. And uh, guess what happened? I mean, that 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 certainly went out of the window. Now, there was not necessarily I don't think any any uh, congressional act um, that, uh, that predated that, but it certainly went away. And I, I, I imagine the NFL could argue, look, these are not normal situations that no longer applies. Right. But, but do you think they'd have an appetite for it? Well, you know, I, there's, I guess there'd be two different, um, driving perspectives on that. One is it's the NFL. We have not yet, um, diluted our audience too much. Um, you know, there was a lot of talk that Thursday night football was going to dilute ratings. Um, it hasn't, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk that streaming was going to dilute ratings. It, it hasn't. Um, at some point, there's certainly theoretically, there's a point at which there's too much NFL football on and, and ratings start to show that. I don't think they believe they're anywhere near that. So obviously, Saturday is a compelling argument. Um, the other the other perspective is that, um, you know, less is more. E- even in this world, scarcity is a good thing for the NFL that, um, and you get back to the question about com- competition from other other sports. And, you know, one of the things the NFL is going for is that it doesn't have this fairly arbitrary schedule of hockey and basketball where, you know, you play sometimes on Thursdays, sometimes on Wednesdays, sometimes on Saturdays. You play on Sundays, by and large, in the NFL. And people are trained, the whole world is trained to watch the NFL from one to 11 on, uh, on Sundays. And, you know, there's something to be said from that, from a, from an audience, uh, perspective. So, look, I don't think they would turn down the Saturday options if it was a clear cut thing, but between the law and between the fact that it seems like there's still going to be some college football going on. Um, you know, I think that we're a little ways away from, from actually coming to coming from that actually coming to bear for the you wrote this week about, you know, we, we, we posed questions across sports heading into this very, very, very busy schedule. And the one that we posed in the NFL was with the flexibility built in, will the NFL play a full 16 game schedule? How are, how are they looking at that? I mean, because look, there's two very different things that have gone on. We've got bubble life and bubble life has worked great. Bubble life has worked spectacularly. Tests are basically zero. Games are going off as scheduled. The only time we've seen really anything move was the NHL because one game happened to go for six hours. And so they had to adjust, make an adjustment and bump somebody back a day. Short of that, everything has been really just sort of as planned. Then we look at baseball, which is not in a bubble. Similarly to how the NFL is not in a bubble and they've had to cancel some games. And so when we start seeing positive tests, if we see them in the NFL on a Friday, for example, and we see 10 players And, you know, a lot of this has been sort of squishy, right? Even with protocols in MLB, there's not a number. There's nothing in the book that says at this point we cancel a game. It's been, look at the Mets Yankees of this past weekend, right? It it was, okay, two players, these are gone. The Reds, a couple of games. We saw that stretch on, you know, for, for more than a week with the Marlins and for a week with the Cardinals. 
with the NFL with one game a week, that's a different kind of flexibility. So so what's their plan or at least their approach if they don't already have a plan for how they'll deal with scheduling around the, in that world? So they are following the same path as baseball and that I think it's fairly clear that it's an intentionally it's intentional that we don't know exactly what it would require to cancel a game. Um, you know, it's a little bit like when I was younger and driving in the winter and I'd promised my mom, I would pull over to the side of the road if the weather got bad, but I never stipulated exactly what would, ha- what, what would require me to take that step. So I just keep going. Um, and I think that's where, where MLB and NFL are. Uh, but then, you know, you come into the realities of things that if your entire offensive line unit um, has reason to be quarantined, you're not going to be able to play a game. Um, it depends a lot on exactly how cases are distributed within a team. You know, if you've got uh, one of six wide receivers, you could probably get past that, especially with the expanded practice rosters. If you've got three quarterbacks who all go down with uh, the COVID list uh, or a quarantine, then, you know, you're going to have real problems. So um, I think one reason they haven't been specific about that is because of that. It's hard. I mean, there's there's a countless different combinations of circumstances and when they test positive and when they don't. Um, the good news for football is they believe is that there's just less variability. The players can be controlled more just because of the schedules. It's not like baseball where they move in and basically live in a hotel for three days at a time in a new city. Um, the problem, like you said, though, is that there's fewer games and you can only play every, you can only play so often without destroying your body. So there's less flexibility in the schedule. The NFL does have some elements to the schedule that would allow them to shift weeks one through four to the end of the year. If they came to September 9th and thought that, you know, pushing the season would, would, um, would give them a better shot. Um, There's also ways that they could cancel certain weeks altogether while retaining competitive equity. Uh, There's weeks where it's all divisional games. There's certain weeks that where it's, um, you know, Everyone gets a home and a road game in back-to-back, so you could take both of those weeks out. Nobody would be hurt by that. And although they certainly don't want to talk about this, the Super Bowl date is flexible. Tampa had to commit to a couple of different weekends in, in February. So the NFL can buy some time if that's what it takes to get in a full season. But, uh, you know, just because of the nature of the small, short schedule, only playing once a week, you don't have the flexibility that baseball does, where you can, in theory, fit a doubleheader in every day between now and September 30th. Football is much more limited. So while they're confident that, that they're going to have fewer of those problems than baseball, there's less room to maneuver for sure. And that's, I think, the reason people believe that uh, there's maybe a pretty good chance we don't actually play 16 games for all 32 teams. You brought up a great couple of words right there, competitive equity. Um, because that's one of those things that in a COVID world, there are certain things that I think we've sort of learned. Yeah, well, it's just not going to be that way. And that may be one. You know, you think about, I remember when the NBA was first talking about resuming without all the teams. And 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 the instant reaction was, well, those. what about those teams? They don't get to play. Well, those games are meaningless to them anyway. They weren't going to make the playoffs. But if I had three of those on my schedule and you had only one, and now we're going to battle for the last playoff position. That really matters. It wasn't long before within the room, I think people looked around and said, we got way bigger fish to fry than that. And I wonder if that's going to have to be the case for the NFL. I mean, it might be a case that somebody plays 14 games and somebody else plays 16 games, right? I mean, I, I just, good luck to them. Um, but but if there has been a lesson from baseball, and again, different sport, different situation, but but in two different ways, right? Different situation. Yes, they play every day. Yes, they travel more. No, we don't have as much of a concern about people spreading it while they play, which there is massive concern 
of that happening in football. I, I think one guy asymptomatic on a field could really, you know, that, that might be a very dynamic, different dynamic than one guy asymptomatic on a, on a baseball field. Brett, let's just pursue that a little bit more. That question of the way we view sports, the way we view competitive equity, we way, the way we view whether this is enough, like the whole asterisk question, is it even worth playing a 60-game baseball season? I think most people, certainly around baseball, would, would say yes, but it, but it will not ever be viewed as the same as a full season. Have we, you think, the sports business in general sort of taking a very different approach with that re- in, in that regard now in terms of what's acceptable and what makes it worth playing. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's like, if you can put something on right now, that, that in itself is like a, 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 you know, I wouldn't say a miracle, but like, it's, it's certainly a win. What's below a miracle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like a, <laughs> a, a strong achievement, whatever you want to call it, but um, no, because that, that debate has been going on with the U S open a bunch, you know, because you talk about competitive equity. I mean, what if you're in a country where your travel restrictions to the United States are more rigid and you're not one of the top hundred players in the world? So, you know, the USTA isn't necessarily going to bat for you. I mean, and so you can't make it and you're not allowed to play, even though maybe you could have been a qualifier or, you know, low seed or something, who knows? Um, so that that conversation is going on. But I, I just think the asterisk thing is just not important right now because the fact that these games are being played at all is is to me is impressive i mean and, and it's still a it's a incredibly challenging set of circumstances so whoever wins these seasons these tournaments these events i mean has had to deal with the mental stress of the whole situation in addition to uh, winning competitively so you know when it comes as, as just a fan i think the asterisk thing this year is is stupid it's very different than saying okay, these guys took steroids and cheated while everybody else, you know, was not doing that. That, to me, is an asterisk situation. This is like, damn, this is amazing we pulled this off, honestly. So anybody that's that's getting through an event right now with, you know, uh, less than, you know, three or four uh, positive cases is, like, thrilled. I mean, it's a, it's a huge win. And, um, you know, I even heard that from Lou Cher uh, from the USTA earlier in the year when he was, when I was like, were, were sponsors scared away from this U.S. Open that, you know, is, is going to be weird and different and, you know, held in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, and he said, no, they're like all in on it. They, they want to be part of a, an experience that's going to be historic and unusual and hopefully bring, you know, encouragement and uh, distraction and happiness to people. And that, you know, I had not really thought of it that way. And that's not, an asterisk at all you know like that's or if it is the 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 footnote is like this was a great thing in a very challenging time you know so i don't i don't i like don't go for that at all if the nfl plays 16 games playoffs and a super bowl this year like that would be that might be a miracle because you know again the amount of people involved in the in the um contact and the amount of players that you already go through in a in a normal season the attrition you have i mean not to mention, you know, the you've got these giant facilities and then they are probably going to be at home for four days a week, um, you know, which which leaves them kind of open. I don't think they're going to stay, you know, camp out at the team headquarters uh, for, you know, four months or five months. So I, if the NFL played 16 games, playoffs in the Super Bowl, I mean, that that would be very impressive 
you know, as long as they didn't just plow through like some major outbreak. I, I wanted to jump in on that because I think I think Brett's perspective is valid, but it reflects, um, you know, the perspective of sports whose seasons were interrupted by this. Um, the NFL owners and powers that be um, just aren't there yet. I think that baseball and tennis and everybody else whose seasons and, and tours were disrupted by this have had to come to terms much more rapidly with the limitations of this year than the NFL. I mean, as recently as six weeks ago, we were, talk- we were hearing NFL teams still talk about full season inside of full stadiums and everything's going to be normal. And clearly that's not the case, but I think they've been a little slower to come around to this competitive equity thing where, Hey, we're just going to try to get the few, the, the season together. Um, they did make a big exception to that when they ruled that, uh, you know, fan teams would basically be allowed to have as many fans in the stadium as their local governments would allow, which uh, creates a theoretical home field competitive advantage. If Dallas gets to have 40,000 people and the giants play in front of nobody. Um, so that, was seen as sort of a, a big admission by the NFL that for the first time ever, basically, they were just going to be sort of okay with that. I think it's a much bigger, much different question. You've got an uneven number of games and you've got to decide who gets the wild card. If one team is uh, 10 and five and the other team is 10 and six, that's where you're going to have some real trouble with the NFL owners who are used to this all being extremely, you know, just right. And, you know, this week the commissioner or um, Troy Vincent, the EVP of football operations uh, confirmed that the commissioner is going to name an outside competitive advisory committee to advise him on these exact sorts of issues because the usual competition committee that, that would normally have these decisions under their jurisdiction are made up of active GMs and coaches. Um, so, so they're not going to be allowed to decide who gets that wild card spot in that theoretical example of uh, 10 and five and 10 and six. Um, so they're thinking about that, but I, I think NFL still has a much higher standard of expectation here because they just haven't gotten into the season yet. And, you know, how pragmatic they'll be or not is a, is a big question that's still outstanding. Well, they got pretty pragmatic around the draft. I will credit them with that. I think that was the first indication. Uh, because, look, 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 this is like ancient history right now. But you remember when there were, people were saying, well, how, we can't bring guys in for, for, for workouts. We, how, how could you have a draft? We can't do this. We can't do that. We can't do that. Well, well, guess what? You figure it out, right? Everybody's working under the same situation and you figure it out. And that is just that, that, that was, I think one of the earliest lessons, honestly, before anybody could play anything, the NFL managed to put on a draft and, but had to really make some adjustments and the networks had to really make some adjustments. And I think after that, since then, that's just been part of life in COVID. And, and, and I got to tell you, um, if I had to bet one way, if, if, if they're going to look at it like, unless we can have this level of competitive balance and competitive equity, uh, well, we, we won't be able to finish a season or we won't be able to do whatever, um, then I don't think they'll get to the playoffs because it, it just, again, Wish them all the luck in the world, but the math of the number of players in that game after what we've seen in baseball makes me wonder where this goes from here. We'll, we will see, though, in, in, and to go back to where we started this in a very, very crowded sports landscape, we went from nothing to everything all at once. Ben Fisher, Brett McCormick, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Bill. Thanks, Bill. First Look is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're a fan of our podcast, subscribe on your mobile device to have First Look delivered right to your phone every Monday morning.
now we turn to executive editor and publisher, Abe Madcor. Abe? Thanks, Bill. Hope everybody is doing well. Good to talk to you on First Look. A couple of things that I'm keeping my eye on. I don't know if you listened to Nick Kelly's pointed remarks in our Road Ahead series last week, but of course we all know that Nick Kelly at Anheuser-Busch, probably one of the busier executives right now, since the pandemic started, he's been out in the marketplace renegotiating over 100 sponsorship deals that they have with properties, events, and teams But he's also been using this time to work with senior leadership about their portfolio of the future and what they're looking for from their partnerships of the future. I thought what Nick Kelly said was very specific because their global CEO, Carlos Brito, said in an earnings call that the company planned to renegotiate all sponsorships. And Nick said that has given him the carte blanche and the cover to go have very difficult conversations with team partners and league partners about the road ahead. And he acknowledged in the future, the portfolio will be different. It'll be more balanced. I read that as it'll be leaner. It'll be more strategic. He said that the partners who step up and give them the flexibility they need about technology, about fan engagement, about media flexibility, those properties would move to the front of the line when it came to renewal talks. He also acknowledged it's not a budget cut. They're going to reinvest the money or reinvest in new properties that they currently don't have. It's all about giving them flexibility, and it's all about these partnerships serving what Anheuser-Busch is looking for. And he acknowledged the portfolio will not be the same. They won't have the same league partners, and they won't have the same team partners. If I'm a property and I have a deal with Anheuser-Busch or actually any major partner, I'm really paying attention to Nick Kelly's words and then adjusting our inventory, and our partnership to make it work. Number two, I hope everybody takes a look at our 10th annual class of Game Changers. We selected 50 women for the 2020 class. These, of course, are women in sports business who are just doing great things, who are out front. These are women who are just doing some great things, really overachieving in their line of work, being pioneers in certain spaces, being thought leaders in others, being first movers. We've got a very broad range of selections. We will look at their stories in late October in a special issue of SBJ and of of course, we'll have our Game Changers Conference. We're doing it virtually, but on October 27th. But there are some very, very talented people we selected for our Game Changers class of 2020. I hope you can all look at the list. And I'm sure you know many of them. Reach out and congratulate them for making the list. Bill, what I'll be spending a lot of my time on this week are our Sports Business Awards. We have more than 30 individuals who are joining us as judges on Tuesday and Wednesday. We will debate, discuss, and eventually vote on the nominees for the 2020 Sports Business Awards. Of course, broken down by category, Team of the Year, League of the Year, Facility of the Year, Event of the Year. Uh, We will be having our Sports Business Awards on the night of September 30th. It's a virtual event. It's going to be a celebration of sports. We are moving forward with this, even though it, uh, it got delayed in May. And the nominees are from really last March, March of 2019 through February of 2020. So they're a little dated, but they're still important and they still did great work and we want to recognize them. So these are pretty intense days. They're very fun days because they're great conversations with some really smart people. And so I'll be doing that, but I hope everybody puts September 30th on their calendar. It's going to be a great night for our Sports Business Awards. So those are some things that are taking up some of my time and some of the things I'm watching and some of the things I'm excited about, Bill. Back to you. Thanks, Abe. That's going to do it for this week. For Abe Madcor, Ben Fisher, Brett McCormick, and our producer, Chris Mason, 
I'm Bill King, and this has been First Look. First Look.